the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, good afternoon and welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. It is, of course, the program, well, with you in mind, where we try to ask and find answers to the questions that everybody seems to have about God, the historical Jesus, the Bible, Questions about worldviews, like why are we here? Not not just why are we here, but where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? So, again, this is the program where we talk about the things that you care about. But from time to time, we also talk about the past, which is history. We also talk about the future in the sense of biblical prophecy. And if you'd like to join me on the program, it's 303 303- 873-1935, friendly Jim is standing by, producer Jim, to take your call, 303-873-1935. And, of course, as we're looking at uh, the the news and the headlines, we are still on this merry, merry-go-round, uh, merry-go-round ride about Ukraine and Russia, it would seem that there are more and more added dimensions that are are unfolding in the Ukrainian-Russian story. But again, I I think we would be making a a grave mistake if we just simply choose to ignore that. 303-873-1935. You know, earlier this week, we had a, a, a series of questions that came in about Genesis chapter 6 and um, the, the Nephilim or, or biblical giants. And by the way, there's a new docu-series that's coming out that makes the case for the, the existence of biblical giants or Nephilim. And so uh, the film is entitled Angels and Giants, The Watchers and Nephilim. It's produced by a group called the Inspiration Networks, which is a faith-based family entertainment network. It's going to be presented in four one-hour segments centered around theories on the Nephilim's existence. And, of course, we've talked at length about this issue from a biblical standpoint. Again, if you want to join me, it's 303-873-1935. But... According to Rudy Landa, who's a senior producer and director at the Inspiration Networks, the subject of the docuseries is based on their love of God's Word. He says, quote, The Bible describes the Nephilim in several places, he told the Jerusalem Post. He said, quote, The main commentary of the Nephilim happens in Genesis chapter 6. Most people cruise right over that passage. The Nephilim were the offspring of heavenly beings who were placed in the spiritual realm to watch over the earth in those days. They were principalities in the heavenly realm. Now, all every single thing that he said is kind of interesting. 
because if he's telling the Jerusalem Post, it, it is true that the main story, if you will, of the Nephilim happens in, ch- in chapter 6. But I don't think he's right when he says most people cruise right over the passage in the sense of Bible scholars, Bible teachers, and Bible students. They really do pay attention to the passage. And when he says the Nephilim were the offspring of heavenly beings who were placed in the spiritual realm to watch over the earth, he doesn't explain how these heavenly beings somehow came into the physical realm. But as revealed in the scriptures, the Nephilim were the offspring of what's called Ben Elohim, or the sons of Elohim, and the women they cohabitated with in Genesis chapter 6. So he says, quote, the docu-series brings the biblical sources, but it should be interesting for non-religious viewers. This, according to Rudy Landa, he said, we seek out actual proof, the traces and clues that are out there in the world and not just the faith-based claims. I wonder what he means by that. He says, because there's so much archaeological evidence that needs to be explored. And again, I wonder what he means by that, about the archaeological evidence for, I guess, giants. Landa was assisted by someone named Douglas Van Dorn, who authored a book on the Nephilim while the film was in production. The docuseries was also filmed apparently in Egypt, in Peru, in the United States, And it first began in Israel's Golan Heights due to its historical significance on the biblical giants. And then it says um, that the book of Enoch, which is a second century apocryphal book, it's a second century BC, um, allegedly written by Noah's great-grandfather, which is doubtful, claims that the Nephilim was sent to Mount Hermon after being banished from heaven. Mount Hermon is based on the Hebrew word herim, which means to be banished. And so at present, Inspiration Networks is looking for a channel to distribute angels and giants, the Watchers and Nephilim. It's supposed to release this fall. I'll be keeping an eye on that. 303 873-1935, that's the number, if you want to join me on the program. And so, again, um, the Bible does have something to say about giants. And there's even a book called The Book of Giants. And it's a pseudepigraphal book set in antediluvian times. But its characters include Enoch and several giants, and the plot deals with the sinful state of the world before the flood. But I'll come back to that. 303-873-1935. It just so happens that we do have an article written on this subject. It got questions, your questions, biblical answers. What is the book of giants? And in our article, 
in the first paragraph, it says the book of giants was considered official scripture in what was called Manachianism, which was a cult group that was, um, it was a cult that, that was embraced by Augustine before he became a Christian. I guess I should just, just quickly tell you Manachianism was an ancient religion that came several centuries after Christ. It was sort of a blend of Zoroastrianism and Christianity. It borrowed concepts, ideas, terms from both. Manachians believed that the universe was dominated by two uh, competing forces of good and evil, represented by light and darkness. While the religion of Manachianism didn't survive very long, and it had, again, uh, some roots uh, or some things in common with Zoroastrianism. It didn't last very long. So the term Manachian is used today mostly to criticize a viewpoint when it's considered to be black or white or overly simplified. So Manachianism arose in Persia in the middle of the 3rd century uh, A.D., And like other heresies, like Gnosticism, it taught that the physical world was inherently evil and that salvation was obtained through knowledge, hence Gnosticism. So, 303-873-1935, I'll be back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Chino Tracy, so glad... You could join me on the program, 303-873-1935. We're going to go back to basics. Um, Again, taking your calls, 303-873-1935. Just a couple of quick things before I go back on track. But, um, again, I know it gets weary hearing the same story coming out of the news as far as Russia building up troops near Ukraine or withholding troops. But there have been mixed reports, despite telling the world, uh, the Russia, the Russians told the world, you know, we're, we're withdrawing uh, from Fox News White House correspondent uh, Jackie Heinrich. It says senior administration officials say Russia added 7,000 troops to the Ukrainian border just in the last 48 hours, rejecting claims from the Kremlin that they've withdrawn. And uh, a story looks at an American woman living in Ukraine who barely got out with her children, and her husband has stayed behind to organize an evacuation plan for other Ukrainians. So, again, it's going to be very, very Interesting, And also, um, over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about a Finnish politician who could be jailed for sharing biblical views of sex. And um, I think her name is pronounced Pavi Rashanin. She was a member of parliament in, fin- in Finland. And she told uh, a couple of major news outlets, I saw her on a news broadcast that was um, on CBN, but I think I also saw another broadcast, not a broadcast, yeah, on Fox News. But um, she's been 
on trial over alleged hate speech simply because she has a biblical view of marriage and sexuality. And she was taken in. Now, she's a member of parliament, but she was taken in by police and interrogated, can you believe this, for over 13 hours. And so, again, there is um, a thin line between law <laughs> and and a totalitarian government. 303-873-1935, that's the number if you want to join me on the program. There's just so much... I want to talk about God. I want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk about salvation. I want to talk about all of those things. Happy to take your call and willing to talk about any and all of those things. But there's another headline. China's communist government is reportedly rewriting the Bible and calling Jesus a sinner. Now, again, this shouldn't shock us or or surprise us, but it's interesting that they would use a biblical term to describe a Jesus, but that's not all. Um, They, the, the, see, this is what's interesting to me. In a world where if you embrace philosophical naturalism or materialism, that, that means you don't believe that there's a God. You don't believe that there is a Bible. You don't believe that there is any kind of soul or spirit or or eternal life or a day of reckoning. If you abandon all of those notions, then everything is up for grabs. And so the Chinese Communist Party, this isn't their first attempt It's an ongoing attempt to try to rewrite the Bible through this communist lens. Tom Nettleton, who's a spokesperson for the Voice of the Martyrs, which is a persecution watchdog organization that ministers and draws attention to the persecuted church, um, told Faithwire about the Chinese government's ongoing efforts to reimagine the Bible. And they said, quote, this is a project that the Chinese Communist Party announced in 2019. And at that time, they said it was a 10-year process to release a new translation of the Bible, he said, noting that it would include elements of Confucian and Buddhist principles among other things, this new translation would be written in such a way that it supports the Communist Party. So how do you rewrite the Bible to accommodate the Communist Party? <laughs> this is interesting to me. How do you, we could, we could use that as a, as a, platform to ask a different kind of question, and that is, how could you use the Bible to rewrite everything to accommodate whatever ideology you want to promote? And so 
It's very, very interesting. The Voice of the Martyrs recently shared a reimagined version of the Bible centered on Jesus' love and corrective compassion for a woman caught in adultery. And it says, the Chinese Communist Party announced plans to update the Bible to keep pace with the times. The revisions will include adding core socialist values, removing passages that don't reflect communist beliefs. In a textbook for high school students released in September 2020, the authors included a passage from John 8 in the revised version. We're going to talk about that and the revised version that they come came up with in just a little bit. But here to take your calls, 303-873-1935. Uh, Teresa, welcome to the program. Hi, hi there. Hi there. <laughs> hey, I heard something really neat, and I tried to call you yesterday when you could call about anything, but I couldn't get through. But um, <clears throat> I heard a story on the Internet that um, – when they went and found Jesus, when Mary went and got the disciples and they went back and saw Jesus was gone, his garments were just laying on the ground. But he had, a napkin had been folded and set down nicely. Right. You've heard this story? Uh, it's in the Bible. Well, what book is that in? Well, um, the it's in John chapter 20. So... In John chapter 20, verse 7, it says, And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. So the way I would think about it is that the grave clothes isn't lying on the ground. It's literally like a cocoon, like an empty shell. Uh, In other words, remember, he's wrapped in grave cloths. And then it, and it, and then it says, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but wrapped together in a place by itself. So another translation says, different respected translations say, um, use the term napkin. One uses the term burial cloth. Another says handkerchief or face mm-hmm. cloth. But it's a word. It's a, it's a it's a Greek word which comes literally. It's a borrowed word from a Latin word which means uh-huh. sweat. So it could be a kind of a towel that you would use for wiping sweat from your face. And right. so so it would it would appear that the body of Jesus is covered with this towel over his face and so that when he rises from the dead the the, the thing is folded neatly and placed on the ledge where his body would have been. Right. Okay, so then the rest of my story is is that the Jewish tradition back then was that when you got done with your dinner, um, the help couldn't come in and clean the table so everybody was done. So when you got done with your napkin, you would, like, cream fill it up and throw it on the table, and that meant you were done. But when the father would get up, if he folded his napkin and set it down, that meant he would be back so they knew not to touch the table. Yeah, I gotta go, but that's yeah, that's provocative, but it's very interesting. Hey, thanks for joining me, and thanks for saying that. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. Happy to take calls, like the call that we just had. This folded napkin stuff is is very, very interesting. 303-873-1935. And, um... 
just a couple more things about the folded napkin from John chapter 20, verse 7. I'm, I'm going to move on to another story, but again, 303-873-1935. It's that word folded. Um, was the burial cloth or napkin or towel folded in the tomb? So two of the translations use the word folded. That's the NIV in the New King James Version. Other translations use the word rolled up, the New American Standard, the ASV, the RSV. The King James uses the term wrapped together. The Greek word is intuliso, intuliso which is from words that mean to twist or to entwine. So the bottom line is that there's no agreement that it was a table napkin and no agreement if it was neatly folded in a meaningful way. So the primary meaning of John chapter 20, verse 7, is that the cloth, which was placed over the head or the face of Jesus in his burial, was a separate cloth from the cloth or the grave clothes that he was wrapped in. And so the significance of that, if there is any, well, is sort of, well, unknown. So it's been rumored that folding the napkin at the table is a Jewish custom that means the person folding the napkin intends to return. Numerous Bible study sources have been checked, but there's nothing about this alleged Jewish custom of the folded napkin. The only reference to this story seems to be from Internet postings and emails that would appear to have originated in 2007. So again, we're in that sort of trust but verify mode. Many Bible commentators and authors have used this creative illustration to make specific application to the resurrection and the return of Jesus. The truth is that table napkins, such as we use today, they weren't used in Jesus' day. Jesus would do an after-meal hand-washing as part of an eating ritual. Washing of the hands before a meal was mandatory according to rabbinic injunction, But after washing their hands, did people dry them with a cloth? Well, apparently there's no early rabbinic source that discusses how the hands were dried after washing them, washing them. So the folding of the napkin is a sign that a dinner guest was finished. Maybe a good European custom, but it appears this custom was unknown in the land of Israel during the time of Jesus. So just thought I would let you know. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. Happy to take your calls. Producer Jim Nichols, you've sent me a note that the, uh, I guess there was much hullabaloo after a photographer After the Super Bowl, um, she apparently fell, and there was some criticism that Matthew Stafford sort of ignored her, but Matthew Stafford's wife obviously showed some concern, but 
I guess, uh, a news outlet, CBS NFL, is reporting that a photographer who was working in Los Angeles for the Rams Super Bowl parade on Wednesday apparently suffered a major injury when she fell off the stage. So this is Wednesday. So this is an after the Super Bowl party, right, Jim? So it's after it. And so the photographer is Kelly Smiley, and as the parade was coming to an end, it appears that Matthew Stafford and his wife, Kelly, asked Smiley to take a picture of them. In the live feed of the incident, which aired on Fox 11, Smiley was on the main stage and was attempting to take a cell phone picture of the Staffords. And as that was happening, she took a few steps back but didn't realize she was at the edge of the stage. And then she fell off the stage as Kelly, as, as, as uh, Matthew, as Kelly Stafford watched in horror and her husband walks away. And based on video from the parade, the stage appears to be about six to eight feet off the ground. It was high enough that Smiley apparently suffered a pretty severe injury, um, that she fractured her spine and that she had to spend the night in the trauma center. But it looks like Stafford and the Rams, in I guess a gesture of goodwill, have agreed to pay for her medical bills. So interesting. But, you know, again, I'm wondering if it really is goodwill or if it was, they were shamed and frustrated into doing it. But hey, after winning the Super Bowl, it seems to me, Jim, they can afford it, right? 303. And you know what? For Christians, the Bible says, do good to all, but especially those who are in the household of faith. So, again, do good to all, but especially those who are in the household of faith. 303-873-1935, that's the number if you want to join me on the air it's interesting to me how important words are in communication. I've often said that if I were to take a two-word definition of that one word, communication, it would be shared understanding. In order for communication to be communication, Somebody needs to be able to say something, and then there needs to be a person who understands what is being said. And the reason why part of that becomes interesting to me in the Bible is because of Isaiah chapter 5, verses 8 through 30, where the prophet um, pronounces a series of woes or judgments on Judah for its wicked behavior. And in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, there's a particular passage where the prophet talks about woe to them who call evil good and good evil. And again, this ties into, in part, what's going on in the popular culture. In the popular culture, there's not just 
the reassignment, if you will, of goodness and evil and evil and goodness. There seems to be a reassignment of truth and lies of what we might even call right and wrong. So their wickedness in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 8 through 30, Judah had produced bad fruit, the fruit of unrighteousness. And it's illustrated in what's called the Song of the Vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 4 through 7. Their wickedness even led them to proclaim sinful things as good, which is why Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Light and darkness are opposites, which adds to the gravity of the men of Judah calling evil good. We're coming up on a time where the line is so blurred that even Christians are beginning to wonder. But I'm here to tell you there is such a thing as good and there is such a thing as evil according to the Bible. Hey, welcome back ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages. 303-873-1935. You know, when you live in a world where God may or may not exist. It's easy for them to manipulate words and meaning. Now, in the Bible, a major problem in Judah during the time of Isaiah was widespread drunkenness. People would wake up early in the morning to drink alcohol, and then they would continue long into the night. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 11, it says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. So in other words, the people of Judah just started drinking. And it wasn't a country western song, but in the time of Isaiah, they're the ones who invented it's five o'clock somewhere, and they would get up and they would drink in the morning, in the noon, and the night. And instead of respecting the deeds of the Lord, they reveled in their sin and drunkenness. They didn't see their sin as wickedness. In other words, being a drunk wasn't a problem. So rather than seeing their wickedness as sin, they called their evil good in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. So in a world in rebellion against God, and in a world in rebellion that not just resists, but rejects God, but even thinks that people who believe in God, that these are foolish people. There are people in your life who think, well, what, what are you doing reading your Bible? What are you doing going to church? What are you doing 
having conversations about God as if he really exists. And so it makes perfect sense that in a world that rejects God or dismisses God or redefines God, then the value system becomes incoherent. We'll begin to confuse sweetness and bitterness and light and darkness and good and evil. And we'll label biblical morality as intolerant and oppressive. And think about that just for a moment, because that is exactly what has happened. Biblical morality is now defined, quote unquote, in the popular culture as intolerant and oppressive and unloving. But I I just want to remind you of something in the book of Revelation. Jesus has the strongest criticism for the false teachers and then threatens to remove. No, that's not right. He threatens to destroy the churches that put up with the false teachers. And so it shouldn't shock us. It shouldn't surprise us. We shouldn't be overwhelmed when we discover that the popular culture takes offense at the truth that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Now in John 14, six, Jesus said, I I am the way the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now imagine someone looking Jesus in the face and say, that's your opinion. That's your opinion. You say you're the way, and you say you're the truth, and you say you're the life. You say that no one comes to the Father except through me. Prove it. And of course, they kill him. And if coming back to life doesn't provide sufficient proof, then what will? What will? In John chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus said, Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So Jesus isn't afraid to call certain things evil. Calling good evil and evil good is a sure sign of spiritual wickedness at work. Calling evil, calling good evil and evil good is also a sure sign of moral rot, of a kind of a spiritual sickness that I'm wondering if we can recover from. Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, when he says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul chalks at least part of this blindness to demonic forces at work. Paul warns that the intensity of the spiritual battle, it isn't going to decrease, it's going to only increase. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, he says, There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money and boastful and proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And then here's what Paul writes have nothing to do with such people. Note, he doesn't say have nothing to do with their false teaching and false and and the consequences of that false teaching. He says don't have anything to do with them. And you might be thinking, really? Cutting through the confusion over right and wrong. And, and enlightening spiritually darkened minds is what the Bible does. In Psalm 119, the psalmist said, in one the longest psalm, Psalm 119, verse 104 and 105, it says, I gain understanding from your precepts. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. In their fallen condition, human beings struggle. Struggle with trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong. And this is part of the challenge. Especially when someone says to you, who are you to say what's right and wrong? Well, only God can give definitive answers on what constitutes that which is good and that which is evil. And that's why we believe that the Bible, when it speaks of itself as being God-breathed, it's the only certain source in providing guidance. You know the passage, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. If Scripture is literally the word that God has to say, and if it's profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training, then why would people absolutely be so dismissive of the Bible and of God. This is Gino Geraci. Thanks for joining me. 303-873-1935. I'll be back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.